Happy New Year, first of all. Um, welcome to the MC and to the Forum for European Philosophy. Um, this is our first ev event in the new year, so um, a very warm welcome, especially today. Um, my name is Christina Musold. I am a fellow here at the Philosophy Department and uh, Deputy Director of the Forum. And it's my great pleasure to introduce um, Owen Flanagan to you tonight. As most of you will probably know, um, Owen has done a lot of work and written extensively papers as well as books in philosophy of mind, philosophy of cognitive science, um, and other related areas. Some of his books include um, Consciousness Reconsidered, The Science of the Mind, um, The Nature of Consciousness, Narrative and Consciousness. Um, he has a, big, a book on dreams as well, and uh, a book on the really hard problem. For those of you who are familiar with the hard problem of consciousness, there is an even harder problem. And his most recent book, which he just came out, is um, The Bodhisattva's Brain, Buddhism Naturalized, and that is a book that he will introduce to us tonight. So um, please join me in welcoming Owen, and I'm looking forward to Um, thank you very much for having me here. I have a portable mic on. Am I projecting well? Okay, I'd rather do this because I don't like to stand still. I'm a native New Yorker and I need to like kind of walk around a lot. Um, and um, so it's, uh, anyway, it's a delight to be here. As I understand this, uh, I should really try to keep my remarks uh, under an hour so that we have plenty of time um, for discussion. And uh, I was thinking on the way here, I just came in from Vienna where I've been for a couple weeks uh, talking about the philosophy of mind. Uh, if my mother was alive today, she would say, what is a nice Catholic boy like you going to London to talk about Buddhism for? Um, <laughs> what has happened? And um, so tonight I'm going to tell you kind of a, a little bit uh, of a story about how I did get interested in uh, Buddhism, given that, as Christina said, most of my work has historically been in philosophy of mind and in cognitive science and in uh, what sometimes called moral psychology. Um, uh, I always had a curiosity about um, uh, comparative philosophy, uh, although I never did any of it. Um, I always thought uh, when I was an undergraduate that it would be really interesting to learn about what alternative non-Western theories of human nature were, what are humans like deep down inside beneath the clothes of culture, how different um, uh, cultures um, conceptualize um, egoism, altruism, the nature of consciousness, the nature of mind. Um, and, uh, but I never gotten around to doing it. And, um, but out of the corner of my eye, um, um, I noticed that a lot of people, at least in America, who have kind of secular humanist uh, tastes tended to gravitate towards Buddhism. Now, most of these people are much too new agey and they're on, their, they're on the left coast of the United States, uh, where I don't try to go too often. Uh, but um, I, I realized that there was, um, part of what was going on there, and one of the reasons, I, I mean, this is just a sociological point, that Buddhism does attract many people who are secularists, and, and even in some cases agnostics and atheists, uh, um, uh, is because it's atheistic when it comes to creator God. Now that's interesting because a lot of people say, well, religions, one of the defining features of religions is that they have a creator God, and typically then there's the idea that it has um, Abrahamic structure, God is all-powerful, all-loving, all-good, and he judges you at, at uh, the end of things. Uh, but the fact that Buddhism uh, lacked that, uh, I noticed, and uh, I appreciated the fact that some people uh, were interested in Buddhism uh, for that reason. It was sort of one way of going part way towards adopting a fully secular view. Um, at the same time, uh, a long time ago, 
actually not too long ago, I went on one of these uh, uh, social network sites to get a date. Um, and uh, match.com, it's called, in the United States. And when you go on this, you have to tell the truth about yourself. You actually have to tell your weight or what you hope your weight will be within a week, which you're going to get. <laughs> and so on and so forth. But one of the most interesting questions is this question about um, religion. And it has every conceivable religion you could imagine, some I've never heard of. And then, of course, it has atheist and agnostic. But it has this category called spiritual but not religious. Now, like a lot of people, it turns out, I felt a temptation to check that one off. Because it seemed to tell you something, or at least it seemed to convey the right attitude. Namely, that I wasn't conventionally religious. I didn't believe in supernatural things at all. Um, I tried, I sort of fought those by intellectual life. But there was something uh, good about saying you're spiritual, because it means something like you're serious. You're morally serious. You can be trusted. Um, and um, so that was my um, uh, sort of up till then, my um, sort of thoughts about Buddhism. But about 10 years ago, I got an email. I was in Costa Rica uh, on a working vacation, and I got an email from my secretary saying that uh, the Dalai Lama's office had been in touch with him, uh, asking if I would come over for a meeting uh, with a small group of um, philosophers and scientists, well, actually scientists, uh, 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 to talk in Dharamsala, where he lives in exile. Um, about destructive emotions. And I see someone in the front row here has this book uh, that came out in 2003 by Dan Goldman. Um, it's called Destructive Emotions and How to Overcome Them. Something like the subtitle is uh, Western Scientists Collaborate with the Dalai Lama. What does it say on the bottom? A Dialogue with the Dalai Lama. A Dialogue with the Dalai Lama. Okay. So uh, that's the story about the meetings uh, that I was at. And uh, it was then, 10 years ago, that my serious academic interest in Buddhism got um, going. And that culminated this year in this uh, book, which Christina uh, just mentioned, and I now advertise the end of the advertisement. Um, so tonight I'm going to talk to you about um, uh, what became, in the last decade, a full-blown involvement in Buddhist philosophy, including learning Pali and Sanskrit and traveling all over the world to Buddhist countries. Uh, so tonight I'm going to talk to you about two different aspects of my uh, uh, journey uh, in this area. Uh, one, the first part of the talk, I think is interesting, um, but the, uh, the, my view is largely negative. There's been a lot of hype about how Buddhism, uh, Buddhists, it's like a Barbra Streisand song, like Buddha, you know, Buddhists are the happiest people in the world. Um, uh, there's a lot of uh, work uh, um, by some of the scientists who I was with in Dharamsala, who um, peddle this idea that there's something about Buddhism. Usually it's thought to be something about Buddhist meditation, but sometimes it's about other things about Buddhism. It could be, I mean, uh, the outfits, the shaped uh, heads, I don't know, uh, that make people especially happy. Um, and I'm going to talk to you a little bit about um, that research, because as a philosopher of mine, I'm very wary of people who make empirical claims about what scientific research shows that's just not supported by it, including if it's about a tradition that I like, uh, even if it's about a tradition that I like, and even if it's work done by people that I admire. So I'm going to talk about some of the <coughs> research that you may or may not have heard of. You'll now notice it in your, um, um, uh, around. Um, the, then the second part of the talk is constructive. It's what I call, this part is about Buddhism naturalized. And what I just mean by naturalized is going back to that first thought I had about if Buddhism is attractive to people who are secular humanists or agnostics or atheists, it can't be Buddhism or the Buddhisms in most of its original forms, not all of its original forms. And by the way, when I say Buddhism, uh, for purposes of tonight, 
I'm talking about something that there's only Buddhisms. There's not a Buddhism. There's not an official Buddhism. There's many, many different kinds. It would be like talking about Christians. Um, uh, uh, there's just too many different varieties to get it all right. Um, and uh, I'll be focusing a lot of my remarks on conversations that I've had with the Dalai Lama, the 14th Dalai Lama and his people, but I've also spent a lot of time in Thailand and Korea uh, and Japan uh, and um, places like that among Theravada Buddhism, Buddhists, different types of Buddhists. Um, but Buddhism, the reason though that the people who are tr attracted to Buddhism as a secular way of being spiritually serious can't be most traditional Buddhisms is because most traditional Buddhisms are what I call just non-naturalistic. They, even if they don't believe in a, a creator god, they have the two following ideas, which I think modern secular thinking people shouldn't want to accept, a belief in rebirth and a belief in karma. And I'll talk a little bit about both of these. There's also, depending on the sect of Buddhism, all kinds of ghosts and witches and warlocks and you name it, spirits all over the place, okay? But put those aside. The big beliefs that we have to pay attention to tonight are um, about um, uh, karma and rebirth. And so Buddhism naturalized, as I put it in the book, if there could be such a thing, someone might just say, I'm sorry, that's not Buddhism anymore, would be something like what you had left of Orthodox Buddhism after you subtracted beliefs in karma and rebirth. And my view now, I've come around to this, is that Buddhism is a really attractive, philosophically serious theory for secularists if you get rid of that stuff. So that's the, I'll, I'll, I won't try to pitch you, and I'm not even a Buddhist myself, so, um, and, uh, but I won't try to pitch you the theory, um, but um, that's sort of where I've come down. Okay, so that's the two parts of the talk. So first we start with the Buddhism and happiness. So in 2003, I had my 1580 Warhol minutes when one morning, um, after publishing an article called The Color of Happiness in the New Scientist, I had a phone call from the press secretary at Duke University saying, Reuters has announced that you have discovered the seat of happiness in Buddhist brains. <laughs> now, first of all, I'm not a scientist. I do have an appointment in neurobiology at Duke, and I have serious interest in neuroscience, but I'm not a scientist. And the basis of this was an article I published in the, uh, in the New Scientist magazine, magazine out of um, uh, uh, Britain, in which I had talked about some of the research I'll now talk to you about. And all I said in that article was that based on research of one of the one person, Mathieu Ricard is his name, he's a French monk, that there was tantalizing evidence that people were pursuing about whether or not Buddhist meditation practices could make people happy, okay? I said it was tantalizing. I was being polite and it was it's tantalizing. I was asked though, I said, so that's all I wrote. And they said, but what is it about Buddhists that make them the happiest people in the world? And this was BBC, Reuters, uh, uh, Canadian Broadcast. I mean, it didn't matter. No matter what I said, I realized that the cat was out of the bag. And somehow or other, people so wanted to hear that there was a spiritual tradition which could not only deliver the normal spiritual goods, ethical, high life, integrity, and all that, but also could make you happy. What could be better? And um, so I fought that, and uh, uh, things quieted down, but they're still out there. Okay, so here's the background to this, this research. Some of you may know about it, and I'm not going to talk through all these points on the board. So back in the 1970s, actually, uh, in Cambridge, Massachusetts, Richie Davidson, uh, uh, John Kabat-Zinn, John Kabat-Zinn is Mr. Mindfulness-Based Stress Reduction. Okay, he doesn't talk about his background in Buddhism, but that's where his techniques of mindfulness-based stress reduction come from. These go back to the 1970s when a, a, a doctor at Harvard named Herbert Benson wrote a book called The Relaxation Response. 
And Benson was right on about adapting uh, some of the Buddhist meditation ideas for people with high blood pressure, uh, people with what they used to call type A personalities. You don't hear much about those anymore. But um, these are people who... Oh, sorry. I was stepping on my mic, no wonder I... So Benson had written this book called The Relaxation Response, in which he uh, suggested that there were certain techniques that were familiar from the West. They're not just Buddhist. They're largely Indian. They're yogic practices. They have to do with breathing and so on and so forth. And um, uh, so Benson's student was John Kabat-Zinn. Richie Davidson and Dan Goldman, the author of this book, were all in Cambridge at the time when there started to be studies showing the following, that people who have lots of activity in the left side of their brain, those of you who are left-handed in the audience, this doesn't apply to you probably. (laughs) (laughs) As always, right? Uh, Sorry about that. Uh, But for most people, um, uh, if you just do uh, um, sort of, we won't talk about specific technologies, but if you just look for activity, that there's some correlation between activity towards the left side of your brain and how positive mood reported is. Okay, so people now l- luckily most people are le- more leftward than rightward, so that's a nice result. Okay, most people are more leftward than rightward, but the more rightward you are, the more it's likely that you'll report that you are only so-so, or you don't feel so good, or you're kind of depressed. Okay, the more leftward, the better. Richie Davidson, so this is the left prefrontal cortex is associated with positive affect. And this is something that's been confirmed again and again and again. No one exactly understands why this is, although we do understand some things about it. There is a phenomenon. Uh, it looks to be hereditable, about 50% hereditable. That's about the same as schizophrenia is hereditable, uh, which is high. Um, that is, uh, your um, uh, positive affect set point looks to be pretty much um, uh, at least bound up or statistically correlated with your um, parental um, set point. Uh, These things don't move too much in the course of a lifetime, but they move some, and that was part of the reason that Buddhists got interested in this game. Um, So uh, Richie Davidson uh, runs this place called the Center for Affective Neuroscience. Now notice this is an interesting naming thing, because most places have a Center for Cognitive Neuroscience, but Richie Davidson has a place called the Center for Affective Neuroscience, and that name is now spreading among places, and there's a whole field called Affective Neuroscience. The neuroscience has to do with feelings, not just thoughts, we'll say. Uh, But Davidson was uh, basically working on University of Wisconsin undergraduates uh, over the years, and uh, he was able to show that you could get these, um, the set points to nudge a little bit. So if you show ordinary people, like us, or undergraduates, a picture of a sunset, it'll nudge the activity leftward a little bit, no matter where your activity is. Positive things nudge them leftward. If you show people things like a cadaver on a hook, it moves it rightward. We now know that there's a phenomenon called adaptation. So that, for example, um, when uh, people, so this, is, this was interesting to these um, uh, guys because it looks like there's what they call neuroplasticity. You could even nudge mood a little bit. Okay, general overall sort of affective state a little bit. Um, We know actually that some events in life move it a lot. So for example, when people get divorced, there's a really a strong rightward move for a typical divorce. It's not just too pleasant, even if it's sort of orchestrated by the couple, it just doesn't work, it's not too pleasant, you move rightward. If a person has a bad, a a death in the family, they move leftward. Uh, People win a lottery, you move leftward. You get in a car accident, become a paraplegic, you move rightward. What's interesting, though, is that after about six weeks, even in those cases, 
you start to see migration back to the set point. So this is a very interesting phenomenon. It's called adaptation. Okay, but this is the background, this left and right hemisphere um, sort of phenomenon. So while I was over in uh, India, these meetings in Dharamsala, Richie Davidson was there, Dan Goldman was there, a, a scientist named Paul Ekman were there. They all hatched the idea that they were going to start studying Buddhist meditators with the techniques that they had been using uh, to, to plot mood and affect. So what had happened, and this was the report that I wrote about in The New Scientist, is that Mathieu Ricard, who's the Dalai Lama's French interpreter, um, he's a monk. He went over in 1968 to get high in Nepal and Tibet, and he ended up being a monk. I mean, uh, he's very frank about that story. Um, he, uh, he had a PhD in, um, uh, with, um, in microbiology, uh, and he felt lost, and he went to find himself, in, and uh, he's a wonderful human being. Um, but um, they found out that, that when he studied uh, Mathieu Ricard, that Mathieu was the leftmost person ever studied. Okay? This is what led to the media hype that, and he was the one individual that I wrote about at the time, that, that scientists, moi, had discovered uh, the, sometimes people said you discovered the spot where the happiness is. I mean, it was very, um, uh, it was kind of embarrassing. But in any case, um, uh, some people would ask, what made him the happiest person in the world? Uh, well, the first point is, we don't know anything. This was a very poorly controlled experiment. He was a friend. Uh, he was actually doing meditation while he was doing this. And he is a very, very happy guy. But in any case, the first point I made is that the, these results are about positive mood. Okay, positive mood, the first thing to notice is that how your overall mood state is doesn't necessarily line up with how we would use the word happy or how we would use such concepts that are interesting to philosophers like how fulfilled you are or how you're flourishing, right? So these are, so the first thing out of the gate that I noticed was that no one was being careful about what they were studying here. There was just this general concept of I feel pretty good about myself. I don't feel so hot. And it was just a very, it was kind of messy. So the first point was that even these initial studies didn't show much of anything. Now, uh, at the same time, um, Mathieu, was, uh, Mathieu was brought to uh, California uh, to work with Paul Ekman. Paul Ekman is really important scientist um, for the following reason. In, uh, I think it was 18... <coughs> 71 or 2, Darwin wrote a book called The Expression of Emotions in Man and Animals. And uh, in that particular book was where Darwin um, hypothesized, he hypothesized as opposed to gave a lot of evidence, that there were universal facial, facial expressions that people make across cultures. And he actually had asked his colonialist friends, and the book is filled with pictures of canines, of dogs, Okay, he says, we recognize the faces that dogs make. We recognize when their face makes it, when they're angry, when they're mad, when their tail goes up, when they're fur. They have recognizable, they, they, they communicate to us by their movements. And he thought that humans probably did this too. Paul Ekman was a student of Margaret Mead, great anthropologist, and Margaret Mead believed that everything was relative. So she told Paul Ekman, go write your PhD by disproving Darwin. And Ekman then went around the world discovering that Darwin, in fact, was right. No matter where he went, and if you read the the in in, uh, in about uh, in the year two thousand or so, there was a new edition of this Darwin book put out, and Ekman tells it's a fascinating story in the history of science. He tells the story about how he became persona non grata with Margaret Mead and her husband Gregory Bateson over this because this was not the answer that Margaret Mead wanted to hear. And Paul is now in his late seventies, and he still uh, will tell that story to any audience that wants to hear. So. He, he lucked out and had a rep, got a reputation. But, but Paul 
did these has done these studies where um, so basically by the early by the early 80s in major journals like Science and Nature Ekman had confirmed the fact that for six or now seven faces it looks like um, you get um, the faces are happy sad scared happy sad scared disgust contempt surprise I'm missing one anger Anger, and did I say surprise? Yeah, I said surprise, anger, okay. So those seven look to be, if you use dental x-rays, you'll see that people move across cultures, move the same uh, uh, facial muscles uh, when they have those responses. Uh, there are cultural display rules, of course, but usually you'll see the same, if you're detecting carefully, you'll feel the same um, uh, muscles move. There's uh, characteristic heart rate and um, blood pressure responses, so when we talk about almost all languages have expressions about the heat of anger. Uh, which is, according to Buddhists, the worst emotion, but you're actually, your fingertips get hotter when you're mad. We get cold feet, we're more scared, indeed, your skin temperature. So all these very, very subtle electrophysiological measures show that there's profiles, there's physiological profiles to these emotions. And you get them whether it's in Papua New Guinea or um, uh, uh, Greenland or uh, in, uh, in Europe. So Ekman uh, brought Mathieu Ricard um, there and Paul um, wanted to do some work on him too. So this is again the N of one as they say. Usually philosophers get accused of, they say what's your evidence for that? And we say I was sitting in my armchair in my office last night and I had this thought. Okay, <laughs> That's the N of one problem that we always get accused of. But the same thing is happening here that there's this very unusual guy who's being passed around among his friends asked to do unusual things. So, the start, so he, did, he did some startle response stuff and he did some um, uh, face reading stuff. So here's the idea of the startle response. They say to Matu, um, Matu is 63, so figure he's been a monk for 30 years. He's the head of a monastery in um, Kathmandu. This happens to all of us, okay? You're uh, in your apartment and uh, your flat, as you say, and you hear a car backfire. Cars don't backfire much, but they used to a lot, okay? So you hear, and you find yourself going like that, okay? That's the startle response, or a loud noise occurs that you're not expecting, that's the startle response. It turns out it's very, very hard for humans to control the startle response, even if we know that a loud noise is about to occur. So in this experiment, Ekman said, I'm gonna count backwards from 10 to zero, or 10 to one, and when I get to one, then the loud sound's gonna go off like a gunshot behind your head. And so 10, nine, eight, seven, six, bam. And in the startle response, he found that, uh, he, did more, he did four other guys, he found that experienced meditators don't get nearly as flustered or shocked or surprised as most people, okay? Now that's not that surprising, after all, who would have expected otherwise? They, um, they have techniques to calm them, and if any of you have done serious meditation practice, you know that it's very puzzling. The first time I went on a silent meditation retreat, I was dying to have all kinds of insights, and all my teacher asked me the one time we met, for one minute was, how's your breathing? <laughs> That's what they do. It's not about anything else. Say, so, well, where's the enlightenment and all that? Say, how's your breathing? Concentrate on your breath. In. It's very good for you. Try it. You'll like it. In any case, so these guys are able to, when there's something bad going to happen, they can, chill, they can calm themselves. They are good at that. And actually, what he found is in the case of... Um, um, Mathieu Ricard, he didn't even seem to flinch his muscles. He had some uh, um, um, uh, 
things on his face, and he didn't even seem to move the muscles that automatically usually move in the response. So this is, this is a lot of interesting autonom autonomic nervous system control that some adepts could do. But these kind, this kind of information is old. But the first thing to notice is that this has nothing to do with happiness, but it was reported okay, by journalists as having to do with happiness. This has to do with something else. And it's important. It's interesting. It's good for you, probably, but it has nothing to do with happiness. Um, in the, with, with, so this is the... Um, yeah, okay. Let me just go on. Uh, I'm not going to read you all these things. Okay, so here's the... So I mentioned already these six or seven faces that um, people characteristically um, uh, know how to read uh, in other people, and we make ourselves without consciously thinking about them. You know, Christine, I, st I forgot to stop, start my clock when I did. Uh, let me see here. So we have to age. Yeah, I do know that. I want to make sure I stop it. Okay, now I'm doing it. Um, so here's what happened in the face cases. There's a, um, most of us are good at recognizing faces for what they're doing. Uh, we can read uh, pretty successfully uh, happy, sad, the other faces, um, by members of our own culture. I mentioned that there are cultural display rules. It's almost always the case that people inside a culture can read each other's faces, but not surprisingly, some cultures, and it, fits, it conforms to the stereotype, so when they do these studies in Tokyo, Westerners can't read the faces of the Japanese as well as, uh, and it's partly because, uh, well, again, being a native New Yorker, I can say this, people are more expressive facially and with their hands and so on in different cultures, okay? So that's known. And so the cultural display rules sometimes mean that you don't <coughs> do as much with your facial muscles in different cultures, but they're all moving in the same way. So, um, so this, the, but you can mess up the system. So children of severely depressed or, and or alcoholic or drug addicted parents often do have trouble reading certain kinds of faces. So for example, not surprising, they're exactly these ones. Angry, scared. Angry, scared faces. Kids, parents are giving very ambiguous information about those if their parents in deep psychological trouble and kids then don't end up being able to read those well. But by and large, this is a system which looks to be innately tuned by mother nature uh, and uh, we become good at it. Uh, what we're not good at, supposedly, is uh, showing um, uh, looking at very short exposures. So if you give people one-fifth of a second to one-thirteenth of a second, um, you've, this is common, uh, kind of a, a common protocol in cognitive science. Um, you flash um, stimuli sub-threshold. Okay, so if I just flash a number like seven, and I say, what did I flash? And you say, I don't know, I didn't see it, it's just a flash. Then I say, guess. And what we usually find is that people guess fairly accurately, depending on how close it is to a certain amount of time. So even if you claim not to see it, you actually did. It's called subliminal perception or implicit perception. People are often good at this sort of thing. What apparently people aren't good at is doing this with faces. So if you don't see a face long enough, you're not good at it. Or at least this was what Ekman and his team thought, having studied these for a very long time. But what they found is that Mathieu Ricard and a couple other experienced meditators, these also, by the way, were um, other um, meditators and friends of the Dalai Lama. So these were all people in the sort of same inner circle. So it was a very poorly done experiment, shall I say. Okay. Um, in any case, um, these people got um, uh, uh, two standard deviations above the norm, namely three out of four, um, uh, three out of four of six right. Um, and it was claimed that they were the only people ever 
out of something like 20,000 people who had done this well. But then it turned out, after this got out in the press, and people again were, my phone was ringing again, and they're saying, did you hear the latest? They're doing this and they're doing that. And, um, um, but what happened was that this was false. And um, there turns out to be a lot of people who uh, do well on this task. And in fact, if you go to paulekman.com right now, um, Paul Ekman, you can buy for $60 a, um, uh, a DVD that will make you a really, really good face reader for sub-threshold faces. And Paul makes a lot of money um, selling this to uh, the people who check you out at the airport security lines, to the CIA, and to the FBI. They're all very good at this sort of thing. Okay, so this is not a this is not an ability which in any way correlates with any sort of distinctive spiritual or religious practice. It's something that isn't incredibly easy to do, but it's something that anybody can learn to do. And if you're in the right profession, you actually learn how to do it pretty well. Um, so this was um, um, the kind of research that uh, disturbed me. So, but anyway, so I'm not going to. I could go on and on and on, but I don't have time, and I can talk about um, other research in the in the Q and A. The, the, the problem, and I, I've said this in both the book and, and elsewhere, the problem I think was more, it, it indicated to me a kind of a sociological issue about the thirst that people want for sort of uh, quick uh, fixes to problems of, about the meaning and purpose and, of life and wanting to be happy uh, is of course uh, something that uh, Westerners uh, really care about. It's interesting that Westerners care so much about it, um, uh, I mean, or look to Buddhism for it, because as I'll say later, Buddhism is interesting. The Dalai Lama wrote a book called The Art of Happiness, but Buddhism is famous for not promising happiness. Buddhism historically promises that you, if you do certain things right, you might not suffer but it doesn't promise happiness. So, um, so this is one of the reasons I got interested in this, and I was worried about the sort of snake oil salesmen who were appearing on the scene to um, uh, sell this um, particular um, way of uh, being and thinking. But the general problem with almost all the research that I've seen on the positive effects of meditation is that um, uh, they're very small samples. They're often not well controlled. They never ask this question that seems to me that a philosopher should want to ask. Um, and I'll, I'll, I'll use Aristotle as the, the way into this, um, and, and I'm sure it'll come up in the question period. The word happiness is, as the um, uh, linguists say, it's polysemous. It has many, many meanings to different people. Um, if you go back in the Western philosophical tradition to Aristotle, Aristotle says, I go around Greece and I ask people what they want, that they want for its own sake, what do they want that they want more than anything else? And they always say they want eudaimonia, E-U-D-A-I-M-O-N-I-A. It would mean E-U is good, like euthanasia, happy death. U, good, daemon, spirit. And until when I was a graduate student still in the 70s, Aristotle's word was translated as happiness. But around then, good Greek philosophers started to say it doesn't mean happiness in our sense of happiness. It doesn't mean something like happy, happy, joy, joy, click your heels at all. It doesn't mean anything like that. In fact, it's not even subjective. Why do I say that? Well, Aristotle says you can't tell if a person is happy until you see how the grandchildren turn out. It's interesting, right? I mean, it's this idea that there's a kind of objective basis. I mean, he, he probably was overemphasizing the effect that parents could have on their children and thus on their grandchildren. But the idea really is that 
Um, even if uh, one is able to give an all things considered judgment and the eulogy of a person, you don't know whether there was, their life was a eudaimonistic life until you see what effects or consequences are yielded downstream. So it's not completely subjective, it's not inside the head. And I worried that these scientists who were um, legitimately interested in Buddhism as a, a good form of life were not being careful enough about this. So that, for example, so what Aristotle says is everybody says eudaimonia, but different people mean different things by it. Some people mean reputation. Some people mean money. Mean money. Some people mean political power. Some people mean sex, drugs, rock and roll. So. Aristotle says we need to go to the experts to find out what happiness is, what true happiness is. Now it seemed to me, paying attention by this time to what Buddhists were saying, that Buddhists did have a conception of happiness, but it wasn't anything like the Western conception of happiness which was on offer um, uh, in these experiments. So for example, just in terms of the psychological research, um, usually the people who work in psychology on um, happiness or positive states of mind uh, distinguish between three different ways of assessing it. One is a hedonic ways. Um, and some people actually think this would be a good idea. You actually would carry around something like my little, my microphone box here, and you carry it around, and each time you have a nice experience, you press a button. <laughs> and then at the end of the day, it calculates. It calculates for you. Hedonic, so you say, that was a good day, 74. It's like a pedometer, <laughs> right, where you're trying to you know, lose weight, you find out how long it is. So that would be one way to do it. The usual measure that psychologists actually use, and the, the one I've been talking about so far, is the one where people say things like, how do you feel overall? Like the US Social Survey <coughs> sends out with our census, they've been doing this since 1974, a question that says like this, how would you say your life is going overall? <laughs> Question mark. <laughs> and then it says this, very happy. <laughs> it's government work. I mean, it's really, it's very embarrassing. But it doesn't get the semantics of anything. I said very happy, happy, not so happy, you know, okay, not so happy. And we get a left-leaning hyperbola, actually. You know, most Americans say better than, better than bad. Um, and um, so that's, I don't know what that is, but it might be a test of what psychologists call subjective well-being. You actually, subjective well-being measures leave it entirely up to you how your life is going. Okay, so I say, you might list off major domains of life. You might say, how are things going in terms of your family life on a scale of 1 to 10? How are things going with your work life, scale of 1 to 10? How's your health, scale of 1 to 10? Okay? And then you perform some kind of computation over this and you get a score <coughs> of subjective well-being. And this is a, not an implausible measure. We do want to know what people think about how their lives are going. But then there are other people who follow Aristotle more and have measures of objective well-being. They say, I don't, I'm not completely interested in how you think it's going. And this seems to me that something philosophers are tempted to do. We say things like, I want to know, like, whether you're really doing well by some other standards than your own. And this is one of the problems that I pointed out in this research right away. In other words, imagine that you take some very, very happy American person, Hugh Hefner. <laughs> For the young people in the audience, he's a founder of Playboy magazine. He wakes up every morning in silk pajamas with two Playboy 
ladies, whatever they're called. Okay, and he doesn't get dressed or anything. He just stays in and he, he lives the life of a hedonist. There's no, nothing in this research that would suggest that his brain, sh that he might not be the most leftward person ever. But if he is the most leftward person, even more leftward than Matthew Ricard, then that shows that these kind of simplistic measures that we're getting about which area the brain lights up is just, there's something peculiar about it. Um, and, and so what the people who worry about objective well-being do sometimes, this has been important work on women in development, for example, Amartya Sen and Martha Nisbaum do this kind of work. Uh, it's been a long-term finding that, for example, if you go to places in very poor countries, like let's say in Bangladesh, and you ask people who are suffering physically how they're doing, women will usually say pretty well, uh, even though they have diarrhea and dysentery all the time and things like that. The men will complain. Okay, so if you take their subjective measures, the women are doing well, but the men aren't so well. Then when you make the water better, the, the women will also say, oh, now it's better. So what people doing with objective well-being measures is they'll say things like, even though you think your life is good, it sucks. <laughs> and this is historically what Aristotle sort of calls upon some philosophers to do. Uh, namely to develop norms for what are good lives and what are not so good lives. I'm not saying that I know how to do this, but I think it's something that we do want to uh, think about and it's something that Buddhism does. So classical Buddhism, the good kind of Buddhism, the kind of Buddhism you should like, is not interested and should not be interested in whether or not brains light up in the happy department. Should be interested, if you are happy, that it has the right causes, okay? that it's for the right reasons. And that isn't going to be showing up in brain scans. So I've been using this lately, well, since my previous book. And by the way, if you want to know what the really hard problem is, the, the harder than the problem of consciousness, it's the problem of the meaning of life. It's the problem of how to achieve eudaimonia, how to find purpose and meaning and significance. And it doesn't have to do with happiness, and here's why. It's this last point here. If you, if you ask my undergraduates, if I say to them, when they're all thinking, oh, this happiness thing, this is good, and I, and I, tell, I say, was Martin Luther King Jr. happy? Was Socrates happy? Was Confucius happy? Was Buddha happy? They get it that happiness isn't the main thing. It's just not the main thing. It's not the most important thing. What we almost all care about, at least in our reflective moments, is purpose, meaning, significance, respect, integrity. These are, these are uh, don't necessarily come with happiness. Now, of course, if you have happiness too, that's good. I'm not denying that. Okay, anyway, that's the first sort of uh, destructive part of my talk. Mm. Just to make you, um, uh, and we can talk about it. There's lots of other experiments uh, on this. This suggestion I guess I'm just making is something like this. Beware of, um, beware of um, people who tell you that Buddhism promises happiness. Uh, if it does promise happiness, it's sure not that normal, that kind of happiness that many people uh, think it might afford. Well, what kind of happiness is it, if anything? So I've taken, in almost all my comparative philosophy work, is using this superscripting strategy. So it annoys a lot of people who read my books now, because I always say things like, eudaimonia Confucian, eudaimonia hedonist, eudaimonia uh, uh, Buddhist, eudaimonia liberal American. Because we all have different, one of the interesting things about contemporary cosmopolitan cultures, cities like this, is that there are a lot of interesting, legitimate contenders for good ways of life in our vicinity. And this is one of the reasons I love doing comparative philosophy, because we live in cities like London and New York and other great cities. We live among people who bring, in their own embodied being, all these unbelievably richly textured forms of life to us, to 
we can do fusion, we can do just paying attention and learning and appreciating. But there's, a really, there's real opportunities, I think, for seeing the insights in other traditions' views. Okay, so what's the Buddhist view? So now I come to the part of the talk um, where um, uh, I want to talk about, um, is it possible to have, to deduct the, uh, the ideas that I think are problematic from a secular perspective? You, you can ask me later on why we should want to deduct these uh, views, you'd say, you know, you say, you might say something like, um, uh, could you be a Christian uh, without believing that Jesus is the Son of God? And you see, it's an interesting question. Like, I know some who do, right? Like in America, do you have Unitarians here? Well, anyway, yeah, you're Unitarian. You must know some good jokes, too. I'll tell you something afterwards. Um, you know the one about what you get when you cross a Unitarian with a Jehovah's Witness? Someone who shows up at your house on Sunday morning with nothing to say. <laughs> so, moving back here, though. Um, uh, in any case, um, these are interesting questions. I mean, to what extent you have to believe in a certain sort of orthodox framework to be counted as one of those, um, uh, where it's whatever kind of thing you want to say. Okay, but in any case, the first thing I want to say about Buddhism is insofar as the theory promises happiness, I already said to you, the theory tends not to promise happiness. In its orthodox forms, the, for, one of the, the first, noble tr first of the four noble truths of Buddhism is that suffering is ubiquitous. Okay, it's all over the place. And there's a way to alleviate suffering, and that's by stopping clutching so much at things that you want, 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 like maybe being happy. Because when you get happy, like how long does that last? Maybe. I mean, if you're lucky, it lasts a long time. But things like meaning and purpose last a really long time. In any case, if there is something on offer from Buddhism, it's this, a stable sense of serenity and contentment. Um, uh, and, uh, and in addition, it's not just a sense of serenity and contentment, because that could be caused by taking smoking pot, for some people. It could be, right? It's where it's caused and constituted by certain things. It has to be caused in the right way. And that's the other problem with looking at brain state. Uh, it's not because I'm doubting that things happen in the brain. They do happen in the brain. States of mind happen in here. Okay? It's just that Buddhist philosophy, the suggestion is, you're not to become happy by taking a happy, well, I shouldn't say that because I don't want to get into that whole issue. Okay, you can do that. I'm sorry, I take that back. You can take happy pills. Um, uh, <laughs> it's supposed to be this, that you're supposed to have developed yourself into being a contented and serene sort of person by developing Buddhist wisdom and virtues. It's a long process. It's a process of self-cultivation. It involves certain beliefs that are deeply philosophical. And perhaps that's why the main message that I can give tonight about why I'm here and uh, why I think Buddhism is a, an attractive form of life, despite the fact that I don't think there's any evidence yet that it will make you happy. OK, so the, the traditional way of carving up almost all the Buddhisms is to say this, that the first noble truth of Buddhism, therefore, all the traditions share the, these beliefs. The first one says, there's suffering everywhere. The second one says, there's ways to overcome suffering if you can figure out what causes it. And here's one of the things that causes it. You, um, are, you want too much. Uh, we want, 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 want. Uh, we're uh, thirsty, thirsty all the time. Uh, we want to acquire things. So familiarly, 
Aristotle wrote that we know that money doesn't bring happiness. He was very, very rich. Uh, so, um, but Dan Kahneman, who won the Nobel Prize in Economics, although that's always a suspicious prize, but um, uh, Kahneman's a great psychologist, and he says that the biggest flat line we've ever seen in the history of economics is the increase to happiness on any measure once you make $60,000 American. So you just do the conversion. Or I can lend you my iPhone, I just put it all done. Uh, okay, whatever that amount is, 60,000 American. As soon as you make that much, so up to that point, you're getting better. Your mood, your, your subjective well-being, your hedonic well-being, and so on and so forth, is getting better. Once you hit that, between 60,000 and 6 million, there's no increase. This was not discovered recently. Almost all classical philosophers, Confucius, Buddhas, Plato, they all mention this. That means my, that's just my warning. Don't, I'm not done. <laughs> they all say this. But then you say, and then they discovered this in the 21st century by a Nobel Prize winner. So what's the problem? Why are we getting this? Why are we getting this? We're not getting it because we thirst, we thirst, we thirst. We still think we're under an illusion. Okay, so Buddhism is, is very interesting to me among great world spiritual traditions because Buddhism promises you that if you can stop clutching and stop believing in false hopes, not have illusions or delusions, uh, then um, you can at least not suffer because you won't be clinging so much. You'll be able to be, and then this is the new agey part, sort of, you'll be in the moment, you'll be appreciating what's happening, you'll be present for your life, <coughs> and you'll be able to be there while it happens and unfolds, and be able, if you die on any given day, to realize that it was a good thing. It was a good one. It was a good one of those, of a human life. Now, this is puzzling to some people, because he, he, these are the four pieces of Buddhist wisdom. So in order to be a good Buddhist, to flourish Buddhist style, to have Udaimaniya Buddhism, you have to have Buddhist wisdom and Buddhist virtue. Now, you just might say, well, then this is not going to be for us secular humanists, because Buddhists are, like, over there. They're from someplace else, okay? Um, and, um, uh, but I think, again, if we think about this, what's, Buddhists um, say you have to believe the following things, that everything is impermanent. That's one piece of wisdom you should absorb. Like, nothing lasts forever. Everything is impermanent. That's the doctrine of impermanence. You are one of the things that there are, so you're impermanent too. That's the doctrine of no self. Everything's related to everything else. I sometimes say in my work that Buddhism has an event metaphysics. The world is just one big unfolding, and we're part of the unfolding. If you cling too much to the importance or significance of your life in this impermanent thing that's happening, then you're clutching again at something which is illusory. It won't last forever. It won't last forever. Lots of spiritual traditions give the promise that it will last forever. Right? Because, I mean, think in the Abrahamic traditions, not only is there a creator God, but the creator God will judge you at the end of times, and then you will go on. For how long? Forever. <laughs> but if when you die, you're just gone, how long are you gone for? Forever. <laughs> My students find this disturbing. <laughs> I don't find it disturbing. 
It seems exhilarating and uplifting and helps you focus on the present moment to think that you are some part late born in this process. I mean, you could start it back at the Big Bang 14 billion years ago if you want. I'm a latecomer to what the Big Bang is doing lately. <laughs> and it will go on, possibly for all eternity, but I won't be here for it. And, to, and so this diminishes. So the whole idea here is that I think Buddhist wisdom is supposed to diminish in some sense the kind of egoistic seriousness with which we take ourselves. And the idea is that if you diminish that egotistic seriousness by having a metaphysical, this is why it's so philosophically rich, it's a certain philosophical view that if you sort of look at it, you think, yeah, that's the way things are. I am different now than I was when I was born. I was different after five years, and I was different than some people say, including in this country, Derek Parfit, Galen Strawson. I'm different all the time, okay? I'm a series of self-stages. But I'm, I'm, an, I'm one of the many impermanent things, and I'm not the self-same being from the boy that was born a long time ago, until I am now. And someday I won't be anymore. But this is, so this is part of, this is the sort of metaphysical structure of Buddhism. Now, in addition, what you're supposed to, so that, so here's the first idea. If Buddhism puts you in a positive state of mind, part of the reason is supposed to be that you get that you're impermanent and no self. Some people say, that isn't very, that's kind of depressing, <laughs> some people say. In fact, there's a nice book by Roger, De, Roger Paul Droit called The European Reception of Buddhism in the 19th Century. And it's all about when people like Schopenhauer and Nietzsche discovered Buddhism, they said, well, this is cool, nihilism. <laughs> really, so it was, their, their view of it was that these doctrines were highly nihilistic, okay, and depressing, kind of. It fit in with a kind of a, a, a zeitgeist that they had. Okay, this isn't at all the way I'm suggesting that it be taken, that, these, that there's somehow a kind of a serenity that comes from getting your head around the facts, the true facts, what we as secularists, see, notice how this fits with the materialistic views of the world, because if you accept a Darwinian view of nature, you know, it is ashes to ashes, dust to dust, in the literal sense. So this is one of the appeals I think this kind of view has. It fits with science. You're also supposed to um, uh, abide these conventional, you know, the, the, the normal conventional virtues. Buddhists say you shouldn't lie, you shouldn't cheat, you shouldn't steal, you shouldn't have inappropriate sex. There's just all the normal ones. Uh, the one that would really be hard for Westerners, you're not supposed to have, um, you're not supposed to work for uh, any company that has any involvement in making uh, weapons of destruction. Um, uh, you're not, that, that's kind of work is out. That would, that would, a lot of multinationals are involved in that, so that's one, that's one conventional virtue that would be hard. But then in, in addition, you're supposed to have somehow gotten from viewing yourself as no self to finding that you have reason to be maximally compassionate. So these virtues are the bodhisattva's virtues. The bodhisattva is like a Buddhist saint. Anybody can go on the bodhisattva's path, and all you do is you vow, because you're no more important than anyone else, to want to end, so compassion in, in, is usually karuna. Compassion is the desire to alleviate suffering in all sentient beings, including yourself. Alleviate suffering in all sentient beings. Loving kindness, metta, is the desire to bring something positive in its stead, if you can. If you can. Sympathetic joy is a completely unknown virtue in the West. It's being happy for your opponent in zero-sum games. It's being happy, you know, when the, when the match is over, you say, sometimes this happens, right? So, uh, 
the doll says to Federer or vice versa, I lost, but that was the best match I ever was in in my life. I was happy to be part of it. But this is supposed to be a lifelong process. You're supposed to do this all the time with everyone. Okay? And, and then there's equanimity, which is a virtue of taking seriously the uh, having a, just because you're no self and you're in other no selves, taking seriously the desires and needs of other people who are there in the present for you now. Now, these are the, um, uh, uh, the way, so the, so the idea here is that, and I'm wrapping up within five minutes, the, the, um, the views of impermanence and no self and uh, great compassion and less egoism are supposed to be tied together in Buddhism. This is something that I puzzle over a lot in the book, how they're connected, because um, whether the connection is supposed to be logical, as soon as you see that you're impermanent, or as soon as you recognize that you don't have a permanent self, that that somehow makes you more likely to be compassionate. Derek Parfit actually says this in his book, Reasons and Persons, which was what, in the 80s, I guess. Um, Parfit says, for different reasons, he points out that Buddhists say this, and he says, if I think that I'm not a permanent self, I find myself much less concerned about my own future, much less concerned about my own past, and much more likely to be as concerned about you as I am about myself. So it has something to do motivationally or conceptually. I haven't figured it out yet, but that's just the way it's supposed to go in Buddhism. Now, in any case, come to uh, the, the final point. Almost all Buddhists believe, though, in these two things. So in addition to the virtues and the wisdom of it, almost all Buddhists believe in rebirth and karma. In fact, uh, when I was over recently in uh, Thailand, for example, I was with university people, and I asked at every single dinner, um, uh, so you give monks, uh, they give monks money. I said, why do you do that? They say, for merit. I say, tell me about that. I mean, I know what they're uh, The merit is to get a better rebirth. I say, you believe that? Yeah. They all say they believe it. It's about the same degree as most people in America. I know not here. If you ask most people in America, do you believe you go to heaven when you die? They say, yeah. You say, really? They say, yeah. <laughs> same sort of thing. Okay? It's roughly the same. They believe it. I mean, they, you know, these are, and these are well-educated, smart people, but they believe, it. They believe this. Um, the Dalai Lama, when I asked him, uh, we were holding hands. We had a private audience. And he likes to hold hands, and I don't like to hold hands with him anyway. Because um, I need, no, it's not him personally, it's just I need, I need, I need to walk around. Uh, but he said to me, um, he, he was very curious about growing up as a Catholic, and I said to him, well, I said, I, he said, why did you leave the church? And I said, well, you know, they said God was going to punish you for, you know, lying to your mother and for all eternity, and that didn't seem like the right thing to do. And I, yeah. he said, oh, that's very, heaven, he said, hell, very bad. So I said, what about, um, uh, what about believing that you'll be re reborn as a sore rat or a cockroach? And he said, we don't believe that. And I said, you don't believe that? He goes, they believe that, but we don't believe that. And he was pointing, it was very Dostoevsky, he was pointing to where the high llamas usually sat next to him. <laughs> so. so that's a, that's just gossip, but it's true. <laughs> Uh, but ordinary Buddhists do believe in rebirth, so they believe, so they have this, so again, it's a theory that's supposed to not give you false hopes, but it looks to me like in breaking off from the mother tradition in India, that Buddhism did latch on to this hope that in some sense I continue, uh, that I always continue, 
uh, and that I continue, uh, if not in the same way as in an Abrahamic heaven, I continue um, according to laws of karma. So these are, now what's interesting about karma, it really basically does the very same work that a personal God does in determining reward and punishment by keeping track, but there's no track keeper. It's the universe keeps track. See, it's very interesting. So it's impersonal. It's a, if it's a theology, it's a theology where the universe keeps track. And then when I die, if I was a good one of me, then I come back as maybe a higher version, a little bit better, new and improved. But if I'm not such a good one of me, I could come back as a sewer rat or the cockroach. So this is interesting that they have this idea. And it's hard to, but these are both things, I claim, that we shouldn't believe in. Uh, uh, can you subtract these? And actually, the Dalai Lama, since I, uh, I wanted to put this quote up, because in this book, in 2005, the Dalai Lama himself uh, is talking about his interactions with Karl Popper. Uh, and uh, he says, um, I was uh, interested in uh, Popper's uh, views, uh, and he says, um, so he says this, he's so friendly to science, and this is another reason why people like uh, this view, he's so friendly to science, he says, my confidence in venturing into science lies in my basic belief that as in science, so in Buddhism, understanding the nature of reality is pursued by means of critical investigation. If scientific analyses were conclusively to demonstrate certain claims in Buddhism to be false, then we must accept the findings of science and abandon these claims. And then look what he adds. Oh, wrong one. He says this, in this later in the book. Buddhists believe in rebirth, but suppose through various investigated means, science comes one day to definite conclusion that there is no rebirth. If this is definitely proven, then we must accept it, and we will accept it. You couldn't imagine the Pope saying that. <laughs> <laughs> It's interesting, you know, it's again, it's a kind of an interesting invitation. I call this his welcome mat. I mean, and it does seem to be uh, a, a, um, a good feature of uh, this tradition. And actually it has to do, I've already talked briefly about Buddhist metaphysics, that's the wisdom part, and Buddhist ethics, but there's also Buddhist epistemology. And if you think about Buddhist epistemology, it, 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 it's very empiricist in the following sense. Experience first, then you reason about the experience, and then you write it down in texts, which are, which are the sort of scriptures. But there's no holy book. The scriptures are the Pali Canon, which was it's 14 times the size of the Bible. And that was compiled about 200 AD. And then all the commentaries that have ever been written on it, that's the canon. It's just the commentaries on the commentaries on the commentaries. That's the tradition. The sacred texts are not sacred because they're given by a god or something like that. They're just smart people trying to write down what they learn from experience. Okay, um, I think I should um, uh, stop there. I'll just say this. What I like about Buddhism naturalized, if you can get rid of that stuff, uh, which as some reviewers said, I good-naturedly call the hocus-pocus in Buddhism, um, uh, that what you get is you get an interesting metaphysics. You get a, a, a view of what there is and all there is as one great unfolding. This is a view that goes back to ancient Greek philosophers like Heraclitus, uh, it's not unfamiliar for physicists right now. Many people, for example, think that um, glass is a liquid, okay? Glass is actually, things that we take for granted as things are always, of course, changing. Nothing is forever, diamonds aren't forever. Uh, they changed, they were once coal, uh, they're diamonds now, they won't someday be diamonds anymore. That's just the way things go. The epistemology is empiricist, 
The ethics it seems to be the kind of ethics that we could use in the modern world of great compassion. There's no promise of cheap kind of happiness. There's a promise of real flourishing, of being a person who's attentive to the moment, to uh, your interactions with other sentient beings. And furthermore, it's not theistic in at least the way that seems to cause some of my friends like Sam Harris and Richard Dawkins uh, some trouble. Uh, it, doesn't have a, it doesn't have a God who's telling people exactly what to do and when to do it and who's right and who's wrong. And secondly, it's unique among world spiritual traditions because it seems to me that most of the world's great spiritual traditions do in fact promise illusions. Uh, and uh, they offer them up uh, in abundance. And uh, this is a theory, at least, which is on paper committed to not doing so. So um, uh, if you have free time and you want to be um, uh, spiritual but not religious, uh, give Buddhism a look. Thank you. The, uh, I don't know how the acoustics in, are in here. It's often annoying not to hear questions, so I'll repeat them, a, a monarch note version of it. The question is, uh, does Buddhism have an um, uh, affinity or, uh, to existentialism? And I think the answer is certainly yes. Stephen Batchelor uh, has a book called Confessions of the Buddhist Atheist. He has um, one of his earlier books is called Beyond Belief which is about a kind of a naturalistic Buddhism. Um, and uh, he's written several books on the connection between existentialism and Buddhism, exactly. And I think it has to do with the fact that um, uh, this idea that, uh, uh, that there aren't answers given externally to a life, um, um, that one has to figure out the way one is going to live uh, while one is doing it, and uh, the impermanence idea. Is that what you had in mind? Yeah. Yes, um, a little thought. It is possible when you said, can you find a connection between science and uh, compassion in the Buddhism? Yeah. Presumably, if you are a scientist, whether you believe the world is deterministic or even has a random element in it, you must accept that every event has a cause and every human action has a cause. And right. every uh, human action has, and therefore you must know however angry you get at what you read about in the papers. There are in fact reasons for that which should give you a motive for compassion. Uh, so, uh, the basis for it, possibly. I mean, so the um, I think there's no doubt that positive states of mind could be scientifically analyzed. I have no doubt about that whatsoever. Um, I'm concerned, uh, so I, I totally agree with you, and actually what you said is important. You said that uh, we surely have to believe that everything that happens has a cause, and the cause is sufficient to produce it. Buddhism bit that bullet a long time ago, so one thing I didn't mention tonight, that's the third part of Buddhist metaphysics, is the what's called uh, codependent origination, or everything is connected to everything else. Uh, there's no concept of free will ever in the Buddhist tradition. It's interesting. 
it just doesn't happen there. So they don't get they don't get themselves sucked into that black hole. Um, uh, but um, but uh, one of the things you said that I should just mention, and this is one of the things that I love about comparative philosophy. I was really struck in the meetings with uh, the Dalai Lama uh, that are written about in that book, Destructive Emotions, by the following. Um, you talked about being angry about what's written in the newspaper. And um, it's clear that at least the Dalai Lama, his Tibetan-style Buddhism, um, that anger is by far the most destructive emotion. Now, we have concepts like this in the West that um, anger poisons the soul of the person who harbors it, resentments, right? We, we know about that. And we know that they can poison relations if it's acted out. Um, but he really surprised people like Paul Ekman and myself by thinking that you can actually not only not behave as if you're angry in situations that we have been socialized to think it's appropriate and normal to feel angry, but that you actually could not feel the anger. So this is in the book. I said this to him, because I couldn't believe this. I mean, I just found it fascinating. So I said this. I said, suppose you're in a movie theater with Adolf Hitler. <laughs> I'm sort of embarrassed that I did say this, but I'm admitting it in public, and it's in the book. I said, suppose you found yourself just at the right time, sitting in a movie theater next to Adolf Hitler, and you realize it's Adolf Hitler. And I said, or Stalin. Or I tried to draw him out. I said, Mao Zedong, or Pol Pot. I said. I think, we think in the West, I would be, it would be appropriate for me to be enraged that it's Hitler and to kill him. And he turned to these high lamas behind him and he said this. They talked for a while in Tibetan. And then he turned back and he said, we think you should kill him. <laughs> and he said, you should, we have a word in Tibetan for that. You should do so, and he did something like this in a lotus position. So he said, You should do so with furious rage, but you should not be angry. <laughs> and it had to do with this idea that you should stop bad karmic chains, where a karmic chain here is not interpreted as a, the supernatural sense. It's just if bad things are happening, you do what is necessary to stop it from continuing to happen. But you sh so it was, it was an amazing moment. He said, You should do it in Tibetan, with furious rage, but you shouldn't be angry. So it had to do with the sort of, the aesthetics of the decapitation or the murder. <laughs> it was interesting, right? I mean, and that's a, just a different mindset than we have, I think, so, but I, I quite agree that all these things can be studied scientifically, yeah. There's a lot, a lot of hands, so uh, yes. I'll, I'll try to be short, and if you can uh, too. Gentlemen, there's a solution. Um, enjoyed your talk very much indeed, thank you. Um, okay. the one, one thing that, struck me really was that you, you, you didn't mention um, the personality of the Buddha himself. Um, and this comes through, it seems, in the reading I've done as well, I mean, a very particular vivid personality. I wonder if you could maybe speak a little bit about that and are there parallels or comparisons that one could draw with other you know, religious personalities? Um, yeah. I mean, the Buddha himself. Correct me if you think I'm wrong, but I don't think he set out to create something called Buddhism. Yeah, no. Yeah, well, it's, you know, did Jesus set out to create Christianity too? You know, I mean, it's a very interesting question about you know the role of charismatic you know uh, leaders in the development. I mean, it is interesting to me, and I'm doing a lot of teaching and writing lately about 
Chinese philosophy, actually, to which I have more of an affinity. I'm more of a Confucian deep down inside than a Buddhist, I think. I'm not compassionate enough to be a Buddhist. Um, but, um, um, you know, there is what uh, some people call the axial age. It's an interesting fact, around 2,500 years ago, you get Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle, you get Confucius, and you get the Buddha. And, uh, you, know, um, you know, what kind of needs were being, these people were, um, there were a lot of people like uh, Buddha, because after all, his story is uh, that he uh, left his wife, because his, you know, I mean, uh, Shantideva in the 8th century, you know, writes about this. He said, oh, God, this, you know, man can't be bothered with this. And he went off to, uh, um, um, and he was skinny and not fat like in the statues. And, uh, but he is a charismatic uh, leader. I don't know what else I would say about that than otherwise that he, you know, it's an interesting fact about cults of personality and how uh, certain figures are selected out. I take it it's not just all the it's not only intrinsic features of the individual, it's what the culture at the time is calling for and needs. And in my experience, I, when I was a, um, younger, I used to think that Buddhism was very, very different from, say, Hinduism. But I've come to think it's a little bit like um, when I'm asked by people, what's the difference between a Methodist and a Lutheran and a, a Catholic? There's differences, but they're all sort of closely related. There, there's, as Wittgenstein would say, family resemblances, close family resemblances among them. It's a very interesting question. I, I, I don't have much more to say about it than. Uh, uh, sorry, so the person behind me. Um, I'm just trying to understand something about rebirth because, um, as I understood it, it's your karma that's reborn. It's not yourself because yourself doesn't exist. Um, so it's the consequences <coughs> of your actions which seem very straightforward in a way. So it's not either, it's not this. Uh, so, yeah, I'll repeat that one. So this is, uh, the question is about the, um, the way in which, um, what is it, you might say, what's the worry about rebirth if in fact there's no self, there's no you to be reborn? This is one way of packaging your idea, right? If there is no per you there, that when you die, you're just done, and of course, like in the same way Aristotle says, there are consequences for how the kids will turn out that you left those effects. Your karma continues. That's a perfectly delightful, naturalistic way of interpreting what's going on here. The trouble is, among the Buddhisms, it's not interpreted that way very, very often. Because you might say, it should be, because if there is no self, then how could you possibly, there's no you to go on. Uh, but most Buddhists are committed to uh, what I, I mean, I call them, and not disparagingly, street Buddhists, the ones I interview, the highly educated people. It's a little bit like this. The same summer I think I was in Costa Rica, um, Pope John Paul uh, wrote something in the newspaper. I mean, it was reported in the newspaper. The Pope said, heaven and hell are not places. Heaven is being in relation to God, and hell is being out of relation to God. And I said to my friend Javier, I said, oh boy, tomorrow, the Costa Ricans are going to be very upset. And indeed, there were letters to the editor. What the hell is the Pope saying? What's going on here? Of course, heaven is a place that you go. And when I got back to New York, I remember my friend who just got back from Hungary said, oh, my poor mother, she read what the Pope said, she can't believe it. <laughs> uh, so these, what your question points to is that there's very, very serious problems with, you see, 
The Orthodox Hindu view that there is Atman, which is just like a Christian soul, that can go on. It's clear. And that's the sense in which we think in our tradition, I can, I can die, ashes to my body can die, but I can go on. The soul can go on. It, it's pretty clear to me that most Buddhisms have absorbed that view, even if it's conceptually incoherent, and they'd be better off with a view like you just said. I'm just saying, on the street, they, they hold that view. So I'm not saying it's... By the way, another thing that Buddhists on the street do, most Westerners think Buddhists meditate. Hardly any Buddhists in Asia meditate, ever. <laughs> Buddhism and I, tell me why the question was is there a connection between Buddhism I said yes to existentialism uh, say more why would you think well uh, the lack of free will deterministic empiricist focus on the external I think well it's an interesting point. So your idea is that, like B.F. Skinner said uh, in a, one of his famous books called Beyond Freedom and Dignity, Skinner said, these, Western, these ideas about free will and libertarian free will, they get in the way. Um, uh, they're, they're a bad part of the Enlightenment package that we should give up, and then we could start to you know, be more aware of the fact that feeling the weal and woe of other people and so on and so forth. Um, that is a similarity. Um, but uh, beyond that, I wouldn't, uh, you know, you might say, does Buddhism have something in common with all deterministic views? I would say it has that in common with deterministic views. It's deterministic. Uh, but I don't see much else with behaviorism. I don't think. The absence of self as well, no self. Well, okay, so, yeah, yeah. Yeah. You know, there are three different ways to do comparative philosophy, I found. One way is to do sort of comparative, compare and contrast. Another place is what Mark Sideritz calls fusion. It's like fusion food. You know, you can just say, wow, this is interesting. Buddhism has this interesting idea that could really contribute better. And you just, you mix them. You know, it's like French cuisine and Chinese. And then there's what I call cosmopolitan. Like, I just like to be around them all and then things happen. But um, you could go there. I can see how you would run that line that behaviorism and Buddhism have certain things in common. Can you see any connection between Spinoza's uh, pantheism and Buddhism? Is the fact that material and spiritual things are very joined together? Uh, the question was, so uh, Spinoza famously, right, is the, Spinoza was a determinist. <laughs> he had a lot of focus, he had a lot of interesting things to say about human emotions and the regulation of desire. He was a happy man. Even though he was excommunicated from the Jewish church and he was 24. Um, uh, and he said this He said, What there is and all there is is one thing. Deus sive natura, God or nature, call it what you will. So his God was not personal. I think Eastern philosophy is interesting to me in general because their gods are not personal. The God is not a personal God. Uh, the Abrahamic traditions have the personal God. So, again, yeah. You're doing like a free association thing with me tonight, aren't you? <laughs> I do see how these, well, good ideas come back, but I, I see that, uh, yeah. Okay, um, here in the right um, You said even if you think your life is good, it sucks. Um, do you think with Facebook and social media and also the whole entire Keep Up With Jones mentality that basically we're comparing ourselves and thus 
Uh, well, I didn't say for sure that your life sucks. <laughs> um, it depends. In other words, it isn't, it just, right. But I say... I more in a relative term, like right now that we have all these platforms like social media, we can relate our lives to other people, that we have a more realistic view of how good our lives are. Good. There's certainly evidence, as I understand it, I'm not an expert in this, but I pay attention because this, this the, the, the discipline that I want to found I call eudaimonics, like it's like harmonics but it's for happiness or flourishing I should say, happiness no, flourishing, happiness is overrated, flourishing, eudaimonics. So one of the things you'd want to study um, uh, about human flourishing, and there is some evidence about this, is that the more economic, social or other kinds of disparity there is in society is the more uh, problems there are because people do really respond to uh, big comparative disadvantages to other people. I mean, I read this now. I, you know, I, so let's assume that there's some better evidence than there was for happy Buddhists. That would be one thing. As far as, um, uh, but, but that's the comparative advantage or disadvantage thing. As far as technology and life, you know, uh, I think this. I think the elders are always worried too much about what they, uh, you know, what's causing the youth to go to hell in a handbasket. <laughs> Socrates. Um, Socrates, uh, who may himself have been illiterate, was worried about the fact that the youth were starting to learn to read. And he thought this would mess you up. <laughs> because you wouldn't be able to memorize everything. So, you know, every good Greek citizen at his time knew how to, knew, knew the, all the plays and things like that. So he writes specifically about this. I mean, Reading and writing are only 5,000 years old. And the scientists who study this notice that the part of your brain that is, taken, that is used to letter detect is the part of your brain that used to track animals. Read Stanislaus Desain's great book on this, Reading in the Brain. These, so every invention, people always worry this is going to separate ourselves further from ourselves, this is going to alienate us. I think it, it's variable, um, which is going to do what? But I think the comparative disadvantage point is an important one about well-being. Yeah. Um, yes, you mentioned Hitler. I'm I just wondering what the Buddhists would think that if there's rebirth, what would Hitler have been before he <laughs> <laughs> I, I find that difficult to sort of understand. How does it come in? Uh, I thought you were going to ask me a different question. I mean. <laughs> uh, well, I did hear once a Buddhist nun giving a lesson, and she said Hitler, like everyone else, was next to his mother's uterus seven weeks before he was born. This is back to the question that you asked about literal rebirth, right? That his, his non-selfy self was right there ready to be reborn, because that happens for everyone. So these views are very confused. From a theological point of view, shall we say, they're very confused. The, the, the thing about Hitler that I, I just, I know this is an answer to your question that I think is most interesting is that there's none of the moralizing about Hitler that you get in the West. Um, there's just kill him. It's interesting. It has to do with the determinism. I think it has to do. Hitler was just a very bad node in the way the world was <laughs> unfolding. We should have compassion for him and get rid of him. It's a different attitude. I mean, I'm not trying to be glib. This is really the attitude that was expressed about someone like that. If they believed in rebirth, then that's got to be the case. See, this is one of the things that people write about who are writing about political theory in Buddhism. Buddhism has certain features in common with what made untouchables in India to this day think that they're unworthy. 
Namely, you're born that way because you had bad past lives. And so in that sense, it's a, not a very humane tradition. You know, the reason, so it allows this. It allows the idea that if your life is going badly, that's because of something that you did in the past. And that's a problem, I think. So thank you. Um, I just have two points. Um, the first one is that um, a couple of months back, David Cameron introduced a UK happiness index. Yeah. And you've got statistics now, and they'll send out surveys asking yeah. to tell yeah. you're happy. I think I read about that, and yeah. I just wondered what you made of that and how you would change some of those questions. And then secondly, could you have like, Buddhism naturalized with virtually every single religion? You could do Christianity naturalized and paganism naturalized. It seems to me that what you're doing is drawing a split between esoteric religions and exoteric. So actually all of these religions have a slightly kind of different core, which is possibly a mystical tradition which does kind of focus on impermanence and suffering and compassion. Whereas what you're drawing the line at is the exoteric element, which is religious performance and all the kind of superstition that goes with that, you know, actually worshiping the church and so on. You got it. A lot of good questions there on what. <laughs> I have a colleague who does that. He says I have one question, and he has like nine semicolons in it. So, <laughs> um, so the first thing I'll say, the um, the uh, a lot of people, you know, the king of Bhutan a long time ago, maybe 25 years ago. Bhutan is you know, a little tiny country between India and China, um, and um, they. The king, the king was asked, you know, uh, your gross national product is not very good. And he said, well, we don't care about gross national product. We care about gross happiness product, you know, something like that. And that took off. And um, so a lot of people have been doing this. In fact, on April 1st, I'm going to a meeting with Jeffrey Sachs, who's a development economist in America, the day before he meets with the head of the UN about introducing well-being indexes in general. So a lot of people are doing this. And I support them as long as they're just not about happiness. If they're about well-being, I think that's the. Um, so I, I use my influence if I'm asked um, uh, on these things. Uh, talk about well-being. Talk about eudaimonia. Um, the um, uh, with regard to, I'll just give a brief answer because there's so many people. To the, um, you could ask this question of any religious tradition. Could you get rid of the? I just call it the supernatural stuff to keep it simple. The stuff that like a 21st century person who's impressed by empirical methods, by science, by the growth of knowledge, sort of where we're at now, um, would think is not believable. Okay? Could you have something with the integrity, could you have something really powerful left if you deduct that? There's two different questions. There's one about so the question I have is like, how essential are any of these things thought to be by the, and you could say, well, it, isn't it up to the people, like I'm not allowed to tell the Jews that you should stop believing in this. Subtract this and I'll, you know, I'll like your tradition better. It's not my business. I think what's interesting about Buddhism, Buddhism is like Christianity and Islam, a proselytizing religion. It's interesting because they didn't do crusades and they're not, you know, as religions go, they're like nicer. <laughs> Although, like, Bhutan is a good example. I mean, that's a racist state. There's almost never been a successful Buddhist state. That is where the government's been Buddhist. Think about it. Burma. Burma, a Soviet, it's a Soviet uh, uh, democracy. Uh, Tibet is a feudal theocracy. Um, Sri Lanka just emerged from a terrible civil war. 
Uh, Buddhism is disastrous in the political philosophy department, but that's a different talk. If you want to invite me back next week, I can do that one. Um, but I think your point is exactly right. I mean, could, you could say, but I think what's interesting is that the Abrahamic traditions, to me, will show no interest in yielding to rationality about their core beliefs. Buddhism, as you saw it, like in the Dalai Lama's quote there, he wants to take this tradition and see if he can work together with the forces of rationality and secularism. I don't want to like, sound like rationality and secular, but you know, to, that, um, you know I think this is, a, this is hopeful, and I think it's more promising there than it is elsewhere. Just on that point, um, in the name of a little bit of self-advertising, we will have another event on religion for atheists on the 2nd of February. Same thing, only different. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, so, yeah, you, Daniel. Yeah. Uh, I wonder if you've heard of the leaves of Eckhart Tolle, a spiritual teacher, because we talked about Udemia. Udemia? Yeah. Uh, he calls it, he makes a difference as well between happiness and his goodness of spirit. He calls it being, like being in a moment. It's connecting with your internal essence and it's kind of like a definition of what you've described. And he calls it, you get an inner peace. You might not be happy sometimes, but yeah. you still be an inner peace. Yeah. I wonder what your views were on that. I don't know if you've heard that. Well, I've heard about him, but I don't, I don't have any knowledge of, of him, except that sounds exactly right. There's a big difference, be and this is something that the scientists who want to study these things would have to do. They'd have to look at the semantics of these different terms. Inner peace is different from happiness, and it might be a, a more desirable state, right? So I think it's very important. Any theory which makes those kind of distinctions, I like, uh, and I think that's a, that helps with these projects of introducing well-being indexes and happiness indexes and so on and so forth. I go back to the point. Great human lives are not usually evaluated on terms of how happy the person was in the conventional senses of happy. They're, they're, they're evaluated on the worthwhileness of the life, and that's a very different kind of thing. We're almost out of time, but should we take one last question? I'm happy to. So I can. I can. So I can. many hands. Yeah. Right there. This I'm going to let this gentleman in after that one. You know what? <laughs> do that first. But I see. I, I did see you kept going. So you first, and then we'll do two more. How about okay. that? Brief, quick though. There's something um, missing from the uh, Buddhist idea, um, something like the Tarasitian notion of flourishing. I mean, the, the Buddhism is about uh, elimination of suffering. It's yeah. kind of a negative idea. Yeah. What, what about the positive, you know, the, you know, the Tarasitian? Yeah, yeah. Could you repeat that, please? Yes, I'd be glad to repeat it. So the question is, uh, is uh, the, uh, so we have, uh, Aristotle does emphasize the positive part. There's a, you're to flourish. I want to see you grow like a flower. Okay, uh, I want to see you become the best orchid, the best oak tree, the best this or that you can be. Uh, you see these, flora, these flowery metaphors also in Chinese philosophy. Mencius says, you know, everybody's born with these sprouts. You just got to put us outside in the sun and let us grow. Buddhism doesn't have that same botanical um, sort of <laughs> metaphor. Uh, it doesn't. Yeah. So it, it's a good point. And this is, again, where, back to what I say, I love comparative philosophy because you can see the strengths and weaknesses of different traditions. Um, and uh, this is something that I think Buddhism could benefit from, just as I think Buddhist political philosophy could benefit from a heavy dose of justice as fairness. Um, and uh, it's a, you know, Buddhists don't fight wars, but they don't run countries well either. So, uh, that's a, yes, and this. Thank you. Um, you, you've half answered the question. Perhaps this is a trailer to your next lecture. 
the problems always seem to me to be in the West that we have a theory of the individual which we cannot, from which we cannot create a theory of the just state. And, and modern economics has conspicuously failed. The more mathematics it gets, the more it buries the failure in the mathematics. On the other hand, your interest in Confucianism, and we lived on the edge of China for many years, mm -hmm. this seems to be a theory of the just state in which the individual has very little freedom, as we would understand. Right. In right. the middle, we've got Buddhism, yeah. which seems to me to have actually created a remarkable theory of the good individual that has failed to transform that into a theory of the good state. Um, why did it fail? And <laughs> Thanks very much. <laughs> I'm really glad I called on you. Uh, no, it's a it's a it's a wonderful question. I do think I think something like this. I mean, you brought up several different things. One is about the relative individualism or non-individualism of different traditions, and uh, um, I think if if I had my slide up here, I would go back there, but. Um, if you look at the list of uh, mandatory virtues, like you just put up, say, Aristotle, you'd have things like, he takes Plato's ones, there's courage, justice, wisdom. Then he adds some, like, he thinks these are mandatory, wit, uh, or friendliness, uh, great soldness, being good and knowing you're good. And magnanimity, like endowing life, you know. So you have to be. These are like, these are these are very Western, and they you can see how they sort of embody 2,500 years ago the idea that there should there need to be some rich people to have the magnanimity thing going. Right? <coughs> uh, but justice is in there, fairness is in there. Um, in Confucianism, you see um, virtues like filial piety. It's a different. It's a kind of a different list and a different emphasis. Um, uh, sure, there are some Chinese philosophers like Mozart who emphasize universal love, uh, but he's atypical. Usually the idea is that love should be particularistic and local. In Buddhism, you get among these men who leave their families compassion for all sentient beings. It's a little bit weird, mm -hmm. but on their list, you don't get fairness and justice. You get compassion. So I sometimes say, I wasn't invited back to this group after I gave this talk called Compassion is Overrated. Um, it's at Stanford University, it's a center for compassion and empathy research. And um, uh, but I, I think that these are, I, I think you can see how if you're living during a time when like, life is not quite nasty, brutish, and short in the Hobbesian sense, but I mean, these people are really, really poor. Okay, trying to make a go of it, people are dying left and right, and uh, it seems like you're, you're not even developing nation states, forget it, right? So compassion can do a lot of work locally. You can see how it, they hit upon a good idea. Once you start to get larger and larger communities, it's not clear how well it could possibly work for psychological reasons. So this is very good. Um, I, have a, I gave a talk last year at, uh, Oxford, or maybe two years ago, it's coming out in a volume on religion and tolerance, and my, my paper is called The View from the East Pole, where I talk about some of these political issues about the fact that um, I actually think that Confucianism and Buddhism support life forms that are less aggressively intolerant than Abrahamic traditions because of the impersonality of their god. But that's a different lecture, too. Yeah.
Okay, I know there's still lots of questions there, but unfortunately we're out of time. I apologize to those who couldn't ask their questions, and um, please join me in thanking Owen for the testimony.